I've spent about $20 million advertising one article. Hey, my name is Felix T, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what is the love demo love video and why is it such an effective marketing tool, why you should not drive your traffic straight to a product page and where you should drive it instead, and where to reinvest in your brand and company. Today, I'm joined by Ezra Firestone from Boom by Cindy Joseph, which is the first pro-age cosmetic line for women of every generation and was started in 2010 and brings in annual revenues of $22 million. Welcome, Ezra. Hey, super happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I love a good conversation about e-commerce and marketing with other Shopify folks. Awesome. I can feel this is going to be a great, great episode already. So let's start off with uh, the motivation behind this. You told us that you were chasing the freedom from the daily grind of a job. And I think everyone out there is like, yes, I can relate. So tell us about that. What was that? What were you doing? And how did you kind of start going down this direction of chasing freedom? It's a good question. I think every entrepreneur is chasing some form of freedom, freedom of time, freedom of location, uh, freedom of resource to be able to use resource towards causes they find noble. And they're kind of running away from pain. And in my case, you know, I grew up very poor and I moved to New York at, at 18 to play poker for a living. And I was staying up all night and sleeping all day and hanging out with a bunch of degenerates. And they called me, Johnny, how you doing? And like, I, I was like doing whatever I could to make money. And, um, I met a guy who was making money from his computer. This is 0405. And I was fascinated uh, by this idea that, you know, my, my, the, the model for making money that I had figured out required me to stay up all night and sleep all day and be around a bunch of folks who were not the coolest. Uh, and I also, once I kind of gave up that life was working a full-time job. And so I was kind of stuck behind the desk at this yoga studio after I gave up the, um, the poker life. And was looking for a, a means of generating money that was something that I enjoyed doing. And uh, so I ran across a guy who was doing search engine optimization, and he was selling information products. And through him, I learned about the world of online commerce and SEO and traffic and conversion, and ultimately kind of made my way to e-commerce because I found that to be the best business model. Uh, it wasn't based on a persona. It wasn't a influencer-based business that's kind of more like cash flow based on someone's personality. It was like a an asset that I could grow. And I actually hold the title of uh, number one mullet wig retailer in America in the late 2000s. Um, but long story short, I found e-commerce in 07 and uh, ultimately started Boom because a very good friend of mine who I was also living with at the time was a former makeup artist and newly uh, model in the baby boomer demographic. It was at the time when advertisers were realizing that the baby boomer demographic had all the surplus money to spend and that they should put people who look like them in ads. And so um, I went to this friend of mine. And I said, hey, you know, we should start a brand uh, uh, using your knowledge of makeup and cosmetics, but targeting women over 50 who are being sold anti-age, anti-wrinkle, you know, all this like hide it, cover it up, negative, um, you know, this, this negative thought process that aging is bad. Like we could do something different. We could have cosmetics that are about celebrating every age because every age really is a different kind of beautiful. So that's sort of like a condensed version of how we got boom started. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was a, a business opportunity in the entrepreneurship and e-commerce space that I had come across after, um, you know, playing poker and growing up poor and having a job I didn't love, kind of found my way to e-commerce through a bunch of other stuff 
and then ultimately found my way to branded e-commerce where I'm creating a brand and a story in my own products versus let's say drop shipping or white labeling or something like that because I believe that to be the most effective and beneficial model because I think the game that we're playing and then I'll stop this rant but I think the game that we're playing beyond you know optimizing our businesses to perform better is really that of resource generation. I think the goal is to spend our time and energy generating as much resource as we can in a pleasurable way and then using that resource towards causes that we find noble, taking care of our family and our communities and serving the world. And um, ultimately, when I looked at, hey, I got you know 15 or 20 years of my uh, work career that I'm going to keep this pace for, what is the most effective way to generate resource? Uh, I kind of came to the conclusion that branded e-commerce where I was developing assets that had um, that were saleable that I could then use that I could then sell and then deploy the money I make from those assets back into the market was the best way to generate wealth. I don't actually think that cash flow businesses are the best vehicle for wealth generation. If you look at how people uh, who generate real amounts of resource do it, it's usually through the liquidation of assets that they built or the purchasing of assets with money that they got through either liquidating other assets or some other way and then operating those assets and then liquidating them. So that's kind of my spiel. So lots of gems in there. So I want to first touch on this the stage where you first got e-commerce right before you picked up, you started Boom. Were they all kind of non-branded business that you started? How many are we talking about? Yeah, because at that time, if you think back to, I'm talking 05, 06, 07, 08, you know, 09, the, the traffic source of the day was search engine optimization, Google search. That was the, all that existed. I mean, AdWords was there and we were using that, but for real, for real, the way that e-commerce merchants were making it was on SEO, which then went away around about 2011, 2012 with Panda, Penguin, and Hummingbird. But you know, uh, Alibaba, AliExpress, Chinese drops, you know, the, the ability to source products overseas, there was no infrastructure for that. So the only way to source a product was to go to American suppliers and get their spreadsheets of their products and their images of their products on CDs and build a Yahoo store, an OS commerce store, an X site or PrestaShop or Zencart. I mean, I used them all. Um, and then use search engine optimization and Google AdWords to drive visibility to this store that would then, when you would get an order, you would fax an American supplier, in my case, a costume wig supplier, or a, I was in gift baskets, bar stools, dog supplies, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and that was the only real way to do e-commerce unless you were doing private labeling, which was a lot harder and more expensive back then. So the, a lot of the folks who were making it in e-commerce at the time were using this business model of drop shipping from American suppliers, which is a bit outdated now in that, it, you know, the margins on drop shipping are pretty slim and American suppliers now, a lot of them understand uh, how to go direct to consumer. And so it's, it's a bit of a more a difficult market. But one of the interesting stories to come out of that time is Wayfair. They started right around then doing the same thing I was doing, buying exact match domain domains like grandfatherclocks.com and things like that using search engine optimization and American suppliers. And now they're one of the biggest drop shippers in the world and they now house inventory. They do billions of dollars a year. They understood some things that I came to later understand at that time. They understood infrastructure, scale, delegation, how to hire people, uh, financial modeling. They, I was a very young entrepreneur who was just uh, trying to make a dollar. I was hungry. I was trying to eat. I did not. I was not a business owner. I, I didn't understand things I understand now about how to run an operation, how to uh, uh, scale a team, how to manage projects, how to, uh, you know, I just didn't, I just was a young kid. I didn't know what I was doing. So 
But the interesting thing is some folks who started in that same model at that time who understood some of these things that allow you to scale an organization are still at it today. Mm. So are you saying that today, is it that the supply chain infrastructure is there or is that the consumer behavior is different that now positions brand building to be the better form of resource generation than the kind of drop shipping or basically the methods that were before? Um, two factors. One is that the cost of visibility has gone up considerably. You could get free traffic. I mean, really, for article marketing was cheap, squadoo lenses and hub pages and bookmarks and uh, reciprocal linking and like the, 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 the things that you did to generate visibility back then required sweat equity and not money. And so you could get visibility for very, very cheap and therefore you could function on drop shipping margins. And it's harder today when you have to go out and basically buy all your visibility to function on the margin of dropshippers. Secondly, many of the suppliers in America, except for the high-end ones, right, people still do American dropshipping with, with uh, big, expensive, bulky items because the margin, you know, bar stools and electric fireplaces and things of that nature. But most of the um, manufacturing for low-priced and uh, impulse-buy consumer goods is happening overseas. And so – all the people who are dropshipping kind of moved in that direction. I moved out of it for a number of reasons. And the reason I think it is better is one, you if you're manufacturing yourself and you have your own brand, then all of the energy that you're investing in developing what I label as brand assets, pixeled audiences, email addresses, phone numbers, Facebook Messenger subscribers, Instagram followers, YouTube subscribers, all those brand assets are accruing and compounding to um, be – in your ownership so that one day you can sell that asset. If you're drop shipping, you're using all that energy to build, um, you know, exposure and brand value for other people's items. It's just not, a doesn't make sense to, uh, to do that. If your if your goal is resource generation at the highest possible, um, value, if that makes sense. Mm. So if someone that's out there that is kind of on this drop shipping path that, that you know, believes that brand building is the future for them, what were the skills that you had to learn? What are the skills that someone has to learn to shift into the brand building mode? Yeah, and I'm not – okay, the reasons I'm anti-drop shipping is one, you don't know where your products are made for the most part. You don't know how that labor is paid or treated. You don't know if that stuff is made with good materials. You have no general information on where the product is coming from, which makes it hard to tell a story about the product and also in, introduces moral and ethical dilemmas potentially. So that's a huge issue for drop shipping, number one. Secondly, um, you know, hey, look, if you don't have a lot of money – you have to start with something that's cheap like affiliate marketing, drop shipping, private labeling where you can get in you know, with a low investment and begin to build some capital. But as soon as you have some capital, you need to invest that in developing your own brand. And the, and the skill set with developing your own brand is you can private label or white label, but you have to be able to tell a story about how the thing was made, why it was made. What's the benefit of owning it? And why do you exist in the world beyond selling a product? What are your viewpoints as a company, as a brand? What do you think? I have a whole course on this on my blog. Uh, if you go to smartmarketer.com forward slash courses and you scroll down to the smart social course, there's an hour and a half free training where I talk about how to develop a voice and a story and a mission and a purpose and a reason for existing beyond having a product for sale. Because if all you have is a faceless, nameless, product, well, you can just sell on Amazon and you can use query-based traffic and you can try to make that work. If you're interested in establishing real value, what that is, what a brand really does, 
is it engages with a group of people who are sharing a collective experience and it adds value to that group of people's lives over time through content and it continually continually offers them solutions to problems they face and conversations they're having. I'll give you a specific example, two specific examples. One, women over 50 who are sharing the experience of aging and the whole world telling them that is wrong. They're going through menopause. Their hair is aging. Their skin is uh, uh, changing. It's it's wrinkling and things like that. And everybody's telling them that's dirty, bad, and wrong. Well, you can uh, communicate with that community and add value to their life through content uh, with ideas and and fun ways to take care of your skin and things like that. And then you can offer products. And that is the key. I mean, in in this game, right, you are engaging with uh, Shopify business owners who have online stores who are interested in proving those. And you're adding value to their life through content that helps them. And then eventually they go and buy different Shopify services and apps and things like that. So I think that the key with building a brand is developing a voice and a story and understanding who you're talking to and what you're talking to them about and how you can comment on the conversations and problems that that group of people is having through content and then offer solutions, really amazing, incredible products that do not have to be unique, right? How many electric toothbrushes are there out there? They're all, they all do the same thing. They brush your teeth electrically, but Quip, Q-U-I-P has done a really great job telling a story, doing content, aggregating all these sort of young disruptor techie toothbrush people who are interested in electric toothbrushes. And now they have a a, a eight or nine figure brand in a market that already existed because they were good content marketers and storytellers. Hmm. So I think there's there's listeners out there that are at this stage where they are they have some kind of success already. And you talked about as soon as you have some capital, start brand building. So what is that threshold? How do you know if you have enough capital to get the ball rolling to actually make a dent towards building a brand? Do you have an extra $10 a day, which is $300 a month, which is $3,600 a year that you can spend on amplifying content that is designed to talk to your customers about something more than just the products you have for sale? If the answer is yes, create one article or one video or one piece of content and then run that as an ad to your buyers, subscribers, fans, people who look like them and engage them. And then the people who consume that filter out the consumers. Hey, anyone who watched 50% of this video or anyone who visited this article and stayed on the page for the top 25% of time and cross sell them and upsell them other products. It's pretty Mm. straightforward. I call Mm -hmm. it the engage and filter method. You engage people with content and then the ones who consume, you filter out and offer them products for sale. And and so you're looking specifically for engagement. Like you're, I guess we're talking about tactics here. You're talking about like 50% of a video being watched is someone that you want to develop a further relationship with. Yeah, or it's someone who already bought from you and now you're engaging them with content to keep them engaged and then the ones who are consuming that, you can go, hey, Facebook, give me an audience of everyone who watched 50% of this branded video about uh, you know, the best places to rock climb in America and then, okay, show them an ad for my rock climbing clip. Mm-hmm. And you can do that on the front end or the back end. That is my whole business strategy, by the way. I amplify content and then I take out the people who engage with my content and I run sales ads to them. Gosh, I definitely want to talk about that's that process. It sounds like if that's your business, I'm sure it's a big operation of creating content. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but, but before we get there, you mentioned the, the story, right? The story is what is the brand. Do you start, I mean, you have to choose, I guess, do you start with the story or if you have a product already, can you build a story around it? Like which one is preferable? You can definitely build a product, a story around a product. There's, there's, there's two parts to this, okay? There's the product, which is the what and the benefits. What is it? What are the benefits of it? How was it made? What stories can you tell about the ingredients in it? What stories can you tell about the benefits of using this product? Who's using the product? Why are they using it? So there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. There's manufacturing process transparency. I mean, look at Everlane. Everlane is the best company. In the, I want to be Everlane when I grow up. And their whole shtick is 
manufacturing process transparency. They say, hey, listen, we think that in the retail market, you're getting ripped off and you have no idea what the markups are and you don't know how your stuff is made. We're going to tell you for each of our items exactly how much it costs us to make it, where we made it, why we made it. And then we're going to tell you what we're marking it up. And then we're going to do videos about how, you know, denim is a really dirty business and it's polluting the world's oceans. And we created a denim product that isn't doing that in all these ways. And you should buy it from us. And that's like their whole shtick is manufacturing process transparency. And their, their mission is to bring, uh, radical transparency to the retail, uh, the, uh, apparel market. And so they're doing a mission, a story and a purpose all around their products. And it's working really, really well. So there's two sides to it. There's the, the the product, which is the what is it and the benefits of it. And then there's the who, who is buying it and what is the life experience that they're having and how can you talk to them about that? And those are kind of the things that you need to figure out in order to be able to create content that is going to be relevant to a group of people. So yeah, you can definitely start with a product, but you got to also figure out like who's engaging with this product and what are they interested in? And then you got to figure out what stories can you tell about the product that you have? Mm-hmm. Well, what should someone be doing on a day-to-day basis then if they are in this stage where they are trying to figure out what stories people actually care about? Because, you know, Everlane's story, for example, like you're talking about, did they know this before starting or did they, is there steps that you can take to truly understand what stories will hit with your target customers? Well, you kind of got to test. I mean, if you look at Boom, right, uh, you, you, your business needs a direct response sales funnel that is going to get people in the door and get them to buy from you. My favorite strategy is to use what's known as a pre-sell engagement article where I write an article that touches on the experience that my people are having that is interesting and compelling to them that transitions into a pitch for my products and ultimately gets them in an open to buy mindset and gets them to click over to my products. So for example, I've spent about $20 million advertising one article. 95% of my front-end awareness and acquisition amplification traffic goes to a single article, and the article goes like this, five makeup tips for women over 50, and then it's five tips about how to have uh, a better and more fun and uh, more exciting and more effective makeup routine when you're over 50, and then it says, hey, by the way, we have this amazing cosmetics and skincare line developed for women specifically over 50. Here's all about it and why it's awesome. Here's why people love it. Go check it out. And that's where we drive all of our traffic. And so, you know, people get all caught up and they need a whole bunch of assets. No, you need one good sales video that you can run as an ad and one good pre-sell article that you can run that to. And if those are compelling and actually talk to your audience, you don't need much more than that. It's really not about the quantity of assets. It's about the quality of assets. And so, yeah, I would recommend starting with a pre-sell engagement article and a sales video. And the best video that I have found, and I've spent about $4 million on this particular video this year is what I call the love demo love formula or the testimonial sandwich. It starts with a face-to-camera customer testimonial from someone who's actually used and gotten benefits from the product. And I'll usually cycle through about four people, five to 10 seconds each being like, this thing is so amazing and here's what it did for me. And they're all enthusiastic and they're holding it up and they're showing it and they're talking about it and talking about why it's awesome. And it's person, person, person. And those people look like the people who would be buying these products, right? They're the right ages, the right demographics, all that stuff. And then it goes into a demonstration of the product in use. What are the benefits of it? How is it used? Why is it awesome? And then it ends with another series of customer testimonials. And that front end content asset, which is love, demo, love, customer testimonial, product demo, customer testimonial, uh, which you can, if you go to my uh, Facebook fan page, uh, Boom by Cindy Joseph, and you look at the ads that we're running, you'll see a million of those, um, is working extremely well. And then we lead that to our pre-sell article. 
Okay, got it. So the love demo love is a video that you're, you're running uh, ads or running traffic to, which then when they click on it, goes to the pre-sale article. And you mentioned that you've driven obviously a lot, millions and millions of dollars against this. So, and you, you mentioned that it is quality rather than quantity. So I'm sure you've tested out a lot of different content to try to beat this. Yeah, I've been trying to beat that pre-sale article for like four years. I've tested a million different, I've 40 some odd different pre-sales against it and I can't beat it. So I wrote a really good one first, yeah. which is kind of awesome. But you know, most, if you look at most e-commerce businesses, they go from a sales video directly to their product offer page. That's really a fine way to go too. And if you go to my website, boombycindyjoseph.com and you click on the store and then you click on the Boom Gold product, the Boom Scrub product, or the Boom Clean product, you will see a new strategy that we are using where we have what is known as a product mini site. And essentially what it is, it's a home page that has like a story about the product that then the user lands on and then they click over to the buy box. So what we've been doing now is we send traffic from an ad directly to the home page of our product mini site, which is kind of like the story of the product and why it was made and what's in it and why it's good. And then once they click through that, they end up on the buy box where they can actually purchase the product. So it's not really a pre-sell uh, in that it's not like a piece of content that is designed to engage them. It's specifically a product sales piece, but it's kind of like before you get to the buy box. And so most people are running video ad or image ad directly to their product offer page. We're finding that when we sandwich either an article or a product mini site homepage, I have templates for this mini site homepage in my app called Zipify Pages, which is a Shopify app landing page builder. It's pretty sweet. Uh, so you can grab that if you want. But, um, that that is working better in a number for a number of reasons. Number one, it gives us more retargeting buckets, so we can now tell the people who watched the video didn't make it to the site, the people who made it to the pre-sale but didn't make it to the products, the people who spent the most time on the pre-sale, the people who did make it to the the product homepage but not the actual product offer page, the people who made it to the product offer page where they can buy, and we're able to segment those buckets and target them all with different content in our retargeting. So it helps in that way too. Um, but we're finding that sandwiching a piece of content between the ad and the buy box, whether it is a product mini site homepage where it's a story about the product or whether it's a kind of front end generate awareness for the brand, talk about an experience the customer is having, and then that goes to the store page. Either one of those works. I think that the content article is better for awareness and acquisition traffic and that the product mini site is better when you're retargeting people back to a specific product. Okay, got it. Makes sense. So let's talk about the content creation process you go through where you have been trying to beat this this control, the, the one that you've been trying to beat for four years. How do you, how does it begin? How do you know what kind of content to start off trying to, to create? Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. You have to think about the experiences that your customers are having and then talk about that. So you got to interview your customers. You got to know who you're selling to. You got to know what they're interested in. We know about the experiences they're having. They're having hot flashes. Their skin's changing. Their hair's graying. They're going through menopause. Everyone's telling them that aging is bad. They're afraid of wrinkles, right? Like we understand our customer and the experience they're having. And therefore we can write articles about how to have more fun or, and you can go to my blog and you can see all of our articles and different stuff that we've done. But, um, it starts with an understanding of who your customer is. And then I've got a whole bunch of in that court, that uh, training I was telling you about, uh, I've got a bunch of ideas like tips lists. That's our favorite one, right? 10 minutes to a, uh, a better makeup routine, eight skincare tips for women over 50, uh, you know, four tips on how to have more fun in your life. You know, we do a lot of tips lists. You can do, um, educational and how to content. You can do, uh, things that are related to, um, 
current events. You can do uh, manufacturing process transparency. I mean, there's a bunch of different ideas, but it comes back to what is your community going to find interesting? And the way to understand that is to understand what experiences are your communities, is your community having and what conversations are they already engaging with and how can you talk about that? And so there's not like a, a formula beyond understanding who you're talking to and what they find compelling. And you, you, you like to interview cust- customers of yours to determine this. Yes. I called my grandma. You know, I, I had a mm-hmm. business partner who was a woman over 50 and we could talk about the experiences she was having. Like you find, and, and look, generally a lot of people are also interested. Like we were talking about Brazilian jujitsu earlier. You and I could come up with 15 different ideas for articles that Brazilian jujitsu people would be interested in because we know the market because we're in the market. Mm, makes sense. So you, you, you obviously have worked with a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs. You worked with people that are aspiring to be, to be entrepreneurs, uh, you know, through the smart marketer. What, what do you see because of your perspective, what do you see most people tripping up on this journey? So the most common reason that people don't build their businesses is they get stuck driving instead of navigating. And at some point in your entrepreneurial career, you're going to have to learn how to delegate. You're going to have to learn how to buy help. You're going to have to learn how to stop doing customer support yourself. Like when you're on the road driving and taking the turn and you're tinkering with your Shopify site and you're tinkering with Clavio, you're tinkering with Facebook ads, you're tinkering with analytics, you can't be up above the road looking at the mountain ranges and seeing what's coming down the pipe. You're stuck driving. And most people get bogged down in technology. They run all the technology platforms. They do it all themselves. They do all their customer service. They write all their emails. They do all their copy. They do all their product sourcing. At some point, you have to learn how to buy help and invest in that help. And the reason people say, oh, I, I hired someone and they didn't work out. Well, it's like, no, you didn't work out the way I – you didn't invest in them. So the, the, the interesting thing about buying help is it gets better over time. If you're buying 20 hours a week of help and that's how you need to frame it, you are buying help for your brand – for your business, you're buying 20 hours a week. Well, the first week, that 20 hours is worth whatever it is. But by week 12, that 20 hours is worth four times what it was in week one because they're more effective. And the way that I'll do this is I'll say, okay, I'm going to uh, – there's a bunch of different roles, right? There's copywriting. There's social media. There's Facebook advertising. There's managing projects. There's managing inventory. There's um, – design, development, video editing. There's all these different kind of roles of of areas where you could buy help and you could use a services agency or you could bring someone in and pay them a part-time or full-time salary to play a role on your team. And the way that I like to do this is I'll say, okay, listen, I want you to be the best social media manager in the world within three years. And here's how we're going to get you there. These are the six best social media blogs. We're going to have all the articles populate into a Slack channel. You're going to spend four hours a week reading these articles and taking notes in a notebook. And then we're going to have a meeting once a week. And you're going to uh, tell me what you think we could do for the brand. You're going to read every help article from every blog post from Clavio and from XYZ, you know, software that is related to your role. Uh, You're going to go to these events. You're going to take these courses. You're going to cut your teeth in these ways. So you hold them accountable and you give them a way to win and you give them uh, educational material and you give them the opportunity to develop a skill set and you actually train and delegate to them. And the way that I like to do it is any repeatable processes that I have, like customer support is a great one that a lot of merchants still do themselves. The way that you do it is I do it, we do it, you do it. So you say, hey, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to document it. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a video of it. I'm going to make a standard operating procedure where I show you each step. And then we're going to do it together where I'm going to, you know, you're, I'm going to be looking over your shoulder as you do it. And then you're going to do it on your own. And that's how you delegate tasks. And I think that, um, you know, most people get stuck trying to do everything themselves. And the other thing that most people do 
is they don't invest enough in paid amplification. Everybody's so focused on what they can get out of their business, but that really is the wrong mindset. It's a misguided mindset. It's about what you can invest into your business. You get out what you put in. And so what you want to do is take, if you made a hundred grand last year, you want to take between 15 and 30 grand, 15 to 30% of your top line revenue number and reinvest it in paid amplification. And by the way, most e-commerce businesses don't even run on a 30% profit margin. So you're reinvesting almost a hundred percent of your profit back into paid amplification to grow the snowball of your business. People start pulling from their business rather than keeping their side hustle, uh, or just not, or living uh, below their means and they don't give their business the energy to continue to grow. The, the paid amplification, the money you invest in ads and new products and new channels and better brand assets, that's the fuel that drives the car forward. So you got to continue to invest. And then the other thing that I would say that stops people from scale is life work balance and over overwhelm. People seem to think, and I've been in this business now since 2005, and I've seen a lot of people burn out. And, you know, people seem to think that uh, harder, working harder and longer equates to being more successful, but it's actually the opposite is true. Like, it's not about how much you work. It's about what you produce. And if you are working yourself to the bone, if you're trying to sprint at all times and you don't have time to take care of your body and you don't have time for your uh, intimate relationships, you don't have time for your social life, you don't have time for your hobbies and you're just like a uh, you know, business is the backdrop of your existence and you are a overwhelmed stress, stressed mess that is going to eventually burn you out and your business is going to fail. Whereas if you approach it as a marathon and you take care of yourself and you show up to it for eight hours a day max, but you do that consistently, you have a much better shot of success and you're much more pleasant to be around. And ultimately you will build something that can be sustainable. It's not about going out and spearing a pig it's about watering a mango tree for every day for a year and letting that fruit and then having that mango tree feed your family for generations. And I think that the pace at which people um, approach their business should be uh, slowed down. Mm, so lots of great and wise advice here. I want to start with the, this idea of using your time wisely. So when you when you have someone that is you you might see like going sixteen hours a day, spending a lot of time, you know, working hard. When you know they can be kind of working smarter on on this, where can they start looking to determine like what am I doing wrong? What should I be cutting out? Like how should I be using my time better? What happens is when you put a container around your work life, and let's say you don't start until ten a.m. And you end at 5 or 6 p.m. Everything that you need to get done will get done within that container. It's not really about picking what to do because what to do will be apparent. It's about setting the border and boundary around your work life and then sticking to that, which is hard to do and takes vigilance and diligence and intention. But ultimately sets you up for, for success, you know, um, because what you do in your work life is going to be dependent upon what the business needs at that point. I mean, I have suggestions about what to outsource first. Outsource customer service design and development and video editing. You can't do those yourself. And customer support, you shouldn't be doing yourself. Hold on to advertising uh, if, if that's a skill set you want to learn because it's a very important one and nobody cares about your money as much as you do. Uh, outsource your copywriting or train someone in your voice because when you think about everything the copywriters do, the product descriptions, the email flows, the broadcast, the blog posts, the uh, labels, the inserts, the sales and launches, I mean – 
the amount that the copywriter does is astronomical for an e-commerce brand. So if you can get that off your plate, it frees you up a lot. Keep doing the strategy, the vision, the development of new products, the talking to customers, the going out and figure out, figuring out what's next for the business, the, the consumption and education and learning. Like do the stuff that's going to be high value and, and delegate the rest via either outsourcing or hiring. And I would recommend hiring in-house. I think that's a much better strategy and ultimately has you have a much more valuable asset. Um, but I think that it's not about what you stop doing first. It's about committing to a certain number of hours and sticking to that and not going over it and then committing to in the hours that you're not working, doing things that are uh, pleasurable, like moving your body, like taking care of like having a social life, like engaging in hobbies, like putting attention on your intimate relationships, that kind of stuff. I mean, that is really the game. So you also mentioned that you need to invest. You need to take care of your your business too. You need to reinvest in it. You say a lot of uh, e-commerce brands don't do this. Don't kind of let their brands almost wither without this kind of support of re reinvesting in it. Well, they start pulling their cash out far too soon, and they don't reinvest back into marketing. I learned this because I'm considered the growth guy by eight and nine figure brands, private equity companies, venture capital companies who are buying e-commerce brands will come to me and say, "Hey, listen." you know, we're considering making a purchase of this retailer that does $50 million a year, $100 million a year, whatever. Go in, take a look at the analytics, the ad accounts, the emails, all of it, the CRO, the conversion rate, all that stuff. Tell us, number one, do you think this is a good buy? And number two, how you would grow it. One of the interesting things that I saw looking at all these bigger brands, right, bigger than mine, is most of these folks had one source of um, – of, 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 of profitable customer acquisition. Maybe it was SEO, maybe it was Google AdWords, maybe it was Amazon, maybe it was Facebook ads. And then they would take all the profit they made from these other channels and invest it in customer acquisition at a loss. So they would say, okay, I make a hundred grand a month in profit. I'm just giving you random numbers. I'm going to take 99.9 of that 99.9% of that, and I'm going to invest it in customer acquisition at either break even or a loss to grow the footprint of my brand assets so that when I run a sale, I've got a bigger ship uh, that I can monetize. And once I understood this, my brand went from 3 million to 17 million the next year because I came up poor. I came up thinking if the advertising campaign isn't profitable, turn it off. And once I understood, oh, take 100% of what you have and reinvest it back in growth through paid amplification to acquire customers, I understood the game. That is a foot, which is a longer term view of the asset rather than what am I doing right now and what's going on in the next 30 days. It's what can this thing be in 12 to 24 months if I invest 100 percent of what it has back into its growth. Mm. And this kind of takes like lots of guts right, and, and belief that it will pay out. I don't think it does. I think if you're I think if you are paying yourself enough to live, let's say you don't have a side job, then who cares about acquiring um, uh you know, uh, cash in the bank if you can grow the footprint of the asset. Because if you think about it, right, the valuation of the company is based on a number of factors. One is profit. Two is repeat business rate. Three is uh, diversification of, of traffic sources, a bunch of different things that, it, that the valuation is based on. But one of the things that's going to increase your valuation is size, right? So if you are uh, subscribing to the idea that the goal is an eventual exit and not cash flow from the business, I mean, yes, cash flow from business is really wonderful. My business makes millions of dollars a year in profit, which is really nice. I like that cash flow, but I'm investing all that back in. And then, hey, if you're going to sell it 18 months before you sell it, you start modifying your acquisition strategy to be more profitable. You start uh, doing more promotions to get your repeat business rate up and stuff like that. But the idea is 
we want to build the biggest and best asset possible. And if we have the ability to buy, buy customers at break even, then we should invest as much money as we can in that so that we can grow the biggest footprint possible so we can have the biggest asset possible because the real monetization event is going to happen when we sell the thing. I think it's the, actually a smarter strategy than pulling cash out um, mm-hmm. as you go, pulling a bunch of cash out as you go. Got it. And you said something really important there, which is that you have to acquire customers that break even. Is that is that a requirement? Or a loss. I mean, basically, I'm talking about, let's say I'm making a bunch of profit from one channel. For example, my business now, I make $10 million a year from repeat business. I've been around for a long time. I'm taking all that profit and I'm putting it back into customer acquisition and I'm not profitable on those first customers. But because I have good storytelling, marketing, great products, those people come back around and buy again. So I am buying customers at a loss deliberately to build the footprint of my brand because I have good repeat business, cross-selling, upselling, and I have free revenue from past customers from years ago, which what people don't understand about paid amplification is it creates what's known as a halo effect. Year over year, the assets that you generate are more than just the customers. It's the pixeled audiences, the email addresses, things like that, the subscribers that you can monetize each year. So there's a halo effect that happens when you invest in amplification. Mm, okay, makes sense. So let's talk about the personal development of an entrepreneur, the people that you've seen become successful. What attributes do you see them investing in, in themselves to, to, to be able to you know, walk further down this path of success? Well, one is not being too proud to ask for help. A lot of people don't want to ask for help when they need it. And it's like, look, you're not going to be the best at everything. Find someone who knows more than you about finances. Find someone who knows more in, in the money. That's a big one. People screw up the money. They don't pay their taxes. They don't understand which products have the highest margins. They don't um, understand cash flow. They're not doing their accounting and looking at their books at the 10th of each month to see what does this month look like compared to last month? What does this month look like compared to the month before? Have our cost of goods gone up? Has our marketing costs gone up? Has our salary gone up? If so, why? Like They're not monitoring the finances in a real way. You've got to have your books done at the 10th of every month and you must monitor your books. Look at your profit and loss statement. Look at your year to date profit and loss comparative to last year. Look at your month to date profit and loss comparative to the last month and comparative to the last year. Like really be paying attention to the money. Pay your taxes on time. Pay your quarterly taxes. Um, you know, there's like money is really what screws people up for mostly new, new entrepreneurs who are trying to scale. They don't understand how to handle money and uh, ultimately it sinks them. That's a big one. But I think, yeah, uh, going back to what I was saying, which is being willing to ask for help and being ever the student. Don't don't get too proud and think you know it all and egotistical. It's like, no, you're always there's always more to learn. There's someone who knows more. There's help that you can get and being willing to let go of control. You get a lot of entrepreneurs who are control freaks and they want to micromanage people and be all crazy on them. And it's like, you know what? You got to give people autonomy and freedom and uh, give them the ability to acquire a skill set and give them room to grow and pay them well and be generous and invest in your team. Because if you want to grow something great, you're going to need more than just you. So um, I have a whole course on this on my blog, too. But, you know, delegation and uh, delegation and scale go hand in hand. Scale can only come from outside yourself. So you need to learn how to get out of your own way. Um, and that comes and and that is, you know. Um, requires the skill set of communication and dealing with people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the the key attributes too of an entrepreneur that even allows them to go on this journey, to start this journey, is this kind of overconfidence that they that they can do it. So I think there's a pro and con to that, right? The con is what you're saying about believing that you know all the answers and being maybe afraid to ask for help, but maybe even not even being aware that they need to ask for help. So what what kind of questions do you ask, or do you recommend people ask themselves to determine, like, hey, maybe I don't know enough about this thing. 
I think if there's mystery, ask for help, right? If you feel like maybe this could be improved based on how, you know, something you saw somewhere else, find someone who knows more about it and ask them about it. You know, join a online community, a Facebook group, join a mastermind. Um, I also think that, you know, entrepreneurship is lonely. You work behind your computer. Nobody understands, um, you know, what you're going through. None of your friends really get it. The pressure, the intensity of being the end of the line for this thing to work, uh, the ups and downs of it, everybody's salary riding on you, the um, amount of debt that you take on to fund different parts of your inventory. I mean, it's like it's a very, very, very intense experience. And so if you're not talking with other people who are having a similar experience and you're not sharing your experience and being open about what your struggles are, uh, it's going to crush you. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to resource generation, which I think you, you, you gave a really good point early on about the, this is the game of how can you generate the most resources using almost like creating out of thin air to begin with and over time reinvesting it to keep on growing it. How does someone evaluate what is the activity that will generate the most resources on a day-to-day basis? How do they decide like how should I spend my time to generate the most resources? What should they be looking at? I mean, that's kind of like um, a bit of a... Um, it's 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 a it's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of stuff you got to do right you got to do whatever the next most important thing in the business is you need to be telling better stories creating good content optimizing your ads optimizing your sales funnel looking at your data and analytics uh you know optimizing your email and autoresponders and broadcasts and flows creating new products marketing to past customers i mean there's it's like there's a whole spectrum of things that you should be doing in your business but first and foremost you know, 70% of your energy, uh, of your paid amplification budget is going to be spent on acquiring new customers. So one thing you could do is create better video assets that are going to engage people and tell a better story to get new customers in the door. That's never a bad thing to do is more front end customer acquisition video ads. That's always a good thing to do. Um, so that, you know, looking at different channels, well, okay, I'm getting all my sales on Facebook. Can I expand to YouTube? Can, am I doing retargeting on every available network? Once someone visits me, if they see my product, are they seeing me on YouTube, the Google display network, Google search, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, you know, like there's a lot of stuff to do. So it's not really like a better or worse, right? It's like a, am I every day keeping a positive attitude and taking the next step in the direction of my goals? Am I achieving something on a daily basis? Do I have a to-do list that's related to the business? And am I getting something done at least once a day? That's the game. It's, it's really not like a, it's hard to prioritize or quantify what is more valuable than something else. I mean, the truth of the matter is that, and this is the part about people overworking themselves. You know, you've heard the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of your results come from 20% of what you do. The truth of the matter is you can do that again and go 64-4. 64, you can 80-20 the 80-20. 64% of your results come from 4% of what you do. You could stop doing 96% of the stuff you're doing and have a business that's almost as good. So you're definitely doing too much and you're definitely spending a lot of time doing stuff that's not that great, but it's hard to know what those things are. So the practice is, and it really is a practice, is can I show up, enjoy myself, have fun, and take the next the next best step that I can think of in the direction of growing my business. And you know, for me, my vision and my goal is to number one, enjoy myself. I want to have fun. I want to be enjoying what I'm doing. My business partner randomly died last year. You don't know how long you have. You people get sick, people get diseased, people get hit by buses. Like, if you're not having fun, what are you doing? Number two, I want to make really, really great stuff. Truly amazing, incredible products that serve the world, that help people. And then three, I want it to be profitable. 
and I'd like it to make money. But I want it to be in that order. I want to have fun. I want to make good stuff, and I want to make money too. I don't care how big it gets. I think this fascination with scale is a misguided fascination and often cripples people because then you end up with this giant machine that you're shackled to that makes you miserable that you don't even like where you could have had something where you were having a good time, making good stuff, and still being profitable. So like it's not really about how big it gets. It's about are you having a good time doing it, and are you making good stuff, and can you have that be profitable? If so, you've won the game. Mm. And I think uh, something else that might be misguided is looking at kind of checking the clock or checking the time. Like things aren't happening fast enough. It's almost like a recurring thought or in the back of a lot of entrepreneurs' heads. Like things aren't happening fast enough. I'm not succeeding fast enough. To you, is this, does this mean that I think a lot of people react this way by saying, react to this by saying, I should work harder, I should put in more time, I'm not doing something right. Is that sometimes the case? Or do you, do you all more often see that things just take time to play out? You know, not everyone's going to be successful. So you have to confront that sometimes what you're doing isn't going to work. But the ones who fail are the ones who quit before the magic happens. And most people judge their um, operations too early, right? Like um, you end up with folks who like, here's what it takes. It takes six to 12 months to develop a great product. It takes six months to build the technology stack. And then it takes six months to market that thing. And now you're 24 months in and you've only done six months of marketing and you probably need to optimize that and do another round. So you're like 30 months in before you can judge a new brand. And most people are trying to judge it in six months. And it's like, okay, you didn't give yourself enough time to truly create something that was meaningful. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of times you just need to spend more time, but sometimes you got a dud of a product or a dud of a brand and you need to switch gears. If, if you've never made a sale and you've been at it for a year and you've been marketing for a while, well, I mean, you might have something nobody wants. So I don't know how to tell you like when you should stop, um, but I definitely do think a lot of people quit too early. Got it. Now, what about you and your team? Like, how do you guys get everything done? Like, what is your project management process? Well, I happen to have a course on that and a one and a half hour <laughs> training on my blog. It's called smartmarketer.com forward slash courses. You can click on my project management training. Hard to uh, describe that in a, um, you know, one minute response, but uh, we use technology. So we use Slack. We don't do email. We don't do Skype. We don't do Dropbox. We don't do any of that. We only Slack with each other. And we use Google Drive to manage and store our files. And we use Trello, which is a Kanban system, to manage our projects. And um, we we communicate. We're all virtual. And uh, I have a I have a I have a whole like training on you know some ideas and thoughts on how to manage projects effectively. But um, but yeah, I mean being clear about the technology you're using, not being on emails and Skype and text and all that. So keep it all in one thread in a tool like Slack. Make sure you've got good organization of your file structure. Make sure you're manage, using some kind of task management tool like a Trello or an Asana or a Basecamp or a Google Keep or a Lean Kit or a Maven Link or something like that um, are good you know, suggestions there. So you caught on early with with um, the, the kind of SEO that you're talking about early on, and now the importance of brand building. What do you see is something today that is in the early stages that you're keeping an eye on? I think short form video assets are coming up. You know, you see Instagram stories, you see Facebook mid roll video ads. So I think the people who are embracing short short form in addition to long long form, so fifteen to thirty minute. Assets along with really, really short form assets are, are great tools for exposure at the moment where you can get cheap inventory. Um, I'm focused on product line expansion to uh, continually have, you know, uh, additional solutions for the people in my community. I think that upselling and cross-selling past customers is really a um, necessity 
for brands today. Um, you know, and good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So boom by cindyjoseph.com's website, smartmarketer.com is also where Ezra mentioned all those courses. And I'll leave you this last question. What was the biggest lesson that you learned last year that you want to employ this year? Um, things can change suddenly and nothing is quite as stable as you think it is. And you're better off not having a single person as the face and voice of your brand. You're better off having multiple people who are representatives and brand ambassadors rather than just one, because if that one person burns out or goes away for some reason, you have to quickly change a whole lot of your assets, including all your emails, all your videos, your whole website, all your ads. It makes it real difficult. Uh, it has a single point of failure. And, uh, and so, you know, in general, I'm a fan of brands that are um, not based around a single persona. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Ezra. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. 